Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. This inquiry, it's clearly a show trial of Boris by a lot of people that hate Boris. For all of those WhatsApp messages, diaries which I've had seen are pretty dire, should be put in the public domain so we can dispense with the tittle-tattle. There is a huge propaganda war going on between Israel and Hamas, and Israel sees Hamas as having started it. When I turned up at the inquiry, All I can say is I felt like I was ambushed. One. We have liftoff. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Dominic Cummings told the COVID inquiry it was, quotes, completely crackers. Someone like him was involved in running the country. The former chief advisor to then Prime Minister Boris Johnson railed at the toxic dysfunctionality of number 10 during lockdown, dismissing countless MPs, cabinet ministers and civil servants as deeply incompetent. But that's the trouble with this inquiry, Alison, and how it's being reported, particularly by the broadcasters. It's all about political blame shifting and finger pointing, rather than trying to work out whether or not lockdown was the right thing to do. The questioning, in fact, and the choice of witnesses appear to rest on the assumption that full lockdown was correct by definition, and the only thing to examine is why it wasn't done faster, harder and for longer. Yet Sweden had a far more limited lockdown than the UK, with just a fraction of the collateral damage in terms of the economy, lost education and mental health scars. And Sweden and the UK, adjusted for population size, endured a similar number of COVID-related excess deaths. Now, I know you've been following the inquiry evidence this week, Alison, and we've also been discussing the economic news. But before we get to all that, you've been talking to the Israeli ambassador to the UK, exclusively for The Telegraph. I certainly have. That was a very challenging interview, Liam, as you can imagine. Absolutely. Just before we get into that, I know Planet Normalists are always uh, telling us that this is the end of days, but I think today... Thursday really is the end of days because today, co-pilot, is the day that the Iranian government takes on the chairmanship of the UN Human Rights Council. <laughs> My God, the fox is in charge of the chicken coop. <laughs> From the country that brought you daily executions, the persecution of gay people and the murder of girls who don't want to cover their hair. So, yeah, it has really gone mad. And let's not forget, Liam, as we look at this terrible situation in Israel and Gaza, that it was Iran that is the puppet master of Hamas who launched the 7th of October massacres. But yeah, I did go to meet Zippy Hotovali. Hotovali, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. She's the 
Israeli ambassador in London and all the curtains in the embassy are drawn. So it has a kind of extraordinary feeling in there. The air is almost filled with shock and sadness. Met some really lovely people working there. I don't know if people will have seen her, I guess, on the news program. She's a very formidable person, former Likud politician. But I think where she is, Liam, is that she was talking to me really about all the horrors that were inflicted by Hamas on Israeli civilians, some of which I've written about, which are really too horrifying, I think, to, to talk about on the podcast. But so they had that happen to them. And then, of course, very, very rapidly, while the bodies were still being gathered up and mutilated young people from the music festival, they were still trying to identify them. The first pro-Palestine march happened in London, and, and we're coming up this Saturday, of course, to the fourth such march. And I think that the Israeli ambassador is understandably upset. I asked her if she thought that the people on the marches understood what they were marching in favor of. And she said she certainly hoped not because the crimes that have been committed against human beings were so repulsive. So I think that what we're seeing now is, I mean, today we're recording this on Wednesday, but today, Thursday, the Israeli embassy has taken the unprecedented step in this country. They will be showing today, Thursday, to British journalists, the body cam footage that Hamas posted from the massacres, which they've already shown that, Liam, within Israel itself to international media, but they'll be showing it in London tomorrow. And I see this as that there is a huge propaganda war going on between Israel and Hamas, and Israel sees Hamas as having started it. They feel, obviously, that they occupy the moral and emotional high ground. And so this showing the horrifying footage tomorrow two British journalists, I think the ambassador is hoping will make a, a decisive difference in the battle for hearts and minds. There's a lot to say, isn't there? We've seen these marches. There are growing accusations that the police either can't or won't challenge illegal behaviour. And before I hand over to you, there have been a number of protests this week as well, a huge sort of sit-in at Liverpool Street Station by those same demonstrators, which seem to be a clear breach of Section 7 of the Public Order Act, which prohibits deliberate disruption to national infrastructure like railways. So it's all hotting up in, in a rather disturbing way. And of course, we have got Armistice Day at the Cenotaph coming up the weekend after this weekend. What do you make of it, Liam? Well, firstly, I'd like to pay tribute to you because I do think you have been deeply affected by this story. You and Laura Dodsworth put together the October Declaration, which now has, I believe, over 70,000 signatures. It does, yeah. A declaration by British non-Jews in support of British Jews at this difficult time. I agree with you as a Londoner. I've been in the centre of London in recent weekends and the marches, while there are many peaceful people on yeah. pro-Palestinian marches, we must say that, many families, many young people, there is very much a militant element in those marches and the way it's being policed, I'm not saying it's easy, but does certainly raise lots of eyebrows and not just among the Jewish community. We've seen footage, haven't we, of the police allowing pro-Hamas, pro-Palestinian protesters to basically defile and desecrate some of our national monuments, our statues, the cenotaph, shouting jihad 
on the streets. Mm. And then we had a really strange situation where an old man was walking down Bethnal Green High Road in East London, and he was doing a little running commentary on it on his smartphone, pointing to the fact that every other lamppost had a Palestinian flag tied to it. And he was suggesting that this was bad for community relations and he was denigrating that protest and he posted that to social media and the next thing we see is footage of the police outside his house arresting him yes and i'm not saying policing this is easy at all i'm not saying it's easy if you're brent council which has a very high muslim population in northwest london there when you're trying to decide whether or not wembley stadium the arch should be lit in pro-israeli colors like it's lit in pro-pride colors or pro-ukraine colors or pro-french colors at times of national turmoil in order to support those particular causes the fact that we have this escalation of ghastly violence between Israel and Hamas. The implications of that, of course, in Israel, in Gaza, are unthinkably bad. But there are implications here in the UK and elsewhere. You mentioned that protest at Liverpool Street Station, a station I know very, very well. And if you look at the footage, some of it's pretty intimidating. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people sitting down on the concourse, shouting, cease fire now, cease fire now. And it is quite scary. If I was a Jewish Londoner walking through Liverpool Street Station, I would hide my Star of David. I would take off my couple, my skull cap. I would remove anything that identified me as a Jewish person. And that's not right. That's not right in this country. Whatever you think of this conflict, whatever you think of the historical nuances and the injustices over many years, how you may see them, it's not right that Jewish Brits can't walk safe in their own capital city. And I know many, many of them, as do you, and many, many of them are my friends, as they are your friends. And that is not the British way. And I do think the police have to really get their arms around this problem, particularly now As you say, we've got Islamist activists on social media Mm. basically trying to incite violence on Armistice Day. I mean, that is getting really, really serious now. And I think it's very timely that you've gone to speak to the Israeli ambassador today. It's put us under some pressure to record the podcast. You can can hear it in our voices. (laughs) But this is what journalists do. We just have to get on with it and find a way through. And it's a very important interview. And the link to the interview is in the show notes to this episode. And I suggest everybody, whichever side of this debate you're on, you read that interview, because I think it's a very important intervention from an ambassador in a country which is not obviously directly affected by this escalation in violence, but has a very important offstage role to play in terms of the diplomacy and the propaganda war. When I mentioned the word ceasefire to the Israeli ambassador, and she is a famously tough egg, she came back and she said, entering into negotiations with Hamas is like picking the colour of the flowers on your own grave. I think it's interesting, Liam, there's several things going on here. I'm concerned that the police are appearing to pick a side. We saw unbelievable footage of Metropolitan Police scraping the posters of child hostages, Israeli hostages, off walls. And the explanation for this action was to avoid inflaming tensions with the community. Now, some of us might see that as appeasing a radical Islamist element. And during that last Saturday's protest, 
there was one of the marchers had got up onto one of the statues in Whitehall. He let off a, a red flare, which he was shaking around. The two coppers standing there, he eventually got down. And one of the policemen said to him, well, if you do that again, or if you do anything racist, and the crowd of marchers around him said to the copper, yeah, you'll do what then? It was so openly defiant and rude. I was extremely concerned about it. That's how disorder starts. That's what we mean by the thin blue line, isn't it? We police by consent in this country. Our cops in general do not go around with guns tooled up. They police by consent and persuasion. That is the British way. But when people are taunting the police in their face, when they're openly breaking the law, that is dangerous. Look, Alison... We will return to this subject. There's an awful lot to say. People really should read your interview because I know it's a very hard one and difficult to deliver interview in a difficult climate. And it's the sort of thing the Telegraph does well. It's a team effort. But let's just move on because I do want to talk about the COVID inquiry. And just before that, I wanted to mention the economy, if I may, because today, Thursday, as Planet Normal goes to air, It is an important day at the Bank of England. The Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee will be deciding on interest rates. We've had 14 interest rate rises since December 2021. We're at 5.25%. Last month, the Bank of England held interest rates. Most people think that the Bank of England is going to hold interest rates at 5.25% again today. And I would say, Alison, not a moment too soon. We've got preliminary growth numbers, survey numbers from what's called the Purchasing Managers Index, the PMI index, showing that the UK economy is now contracting quite quickly. So we're on the brink of a recession. And on Wednesday, the day we're recording, we had some really eyebrow raising insolvency numbers. I know this sounds dull, but behind almost every insolvency, there's a family firm, there's people's hopes and dreams, there's pressure on relationships, there's worry about how people are going to feed their family. Insolvencies during the first nine months of the year, January to September, were 13% up on 2022. And they were the biggest number of insolvencies, Alison, in a nine-month period since 2009, which was, of course, the aftermath of the global financial crisis and the Lehman Brothers collapse. So these successive increases in interest rates, 14 interest rate rises, as I said, they are now really biting. They are now really constricting the economy like a straitjacket. They are contracting growth. They are bearing down on enterprise. They are leading to a reduction in bank credit, both the supply of bank credit and the demand for bank credit. Inflation now, it seems to me, unless we have a big kind of energy price spike, a big geopolitical whiz bang. And so far, what's going on in the Middle East hasn't really caused an energy price spike. Prices of oil are are firmly above $90 a barrel, but they seem to be staying where they are for now. Unless there's a big energy price spike, I do think inflation will start to come down rapidly now. We're still above 6%. We should be nearer 2%. But the danger for me, Alison, now is that the Bank of England, having been far too slow to get the interest rate rises going in the first place, having been far too complacent about inflation for a long time. It's transitory, old boy. Don't worry about it. Well, it hasn't been transitory. It's been persistently high and stubborn. Having dropped the ball before, the Bank of England overcompensates and does too many interest rate rises and drives the economy off a cliff and into an unnecessary recession. The US has shown 
that you can get your arms around inflation. They're well below 4% now. And the economy is growing at 2 2.5%, almost 5% in the third quarter. You can achieve these soft landings, but wise heads must prevail. And fingers and toes crossed that the Monetary Policy Committee holds rates at 12 noon today. Well, you've been saying for a while, haven't you, that then they, when they suddenly decided very belatedly to start putting rates up, they weren't even waiting to see them take effect before they were jacking up the next one. So they've gone from being not panicked to being over panicked, haven't they, in a period of time. But as you said, Lynn, we really want to, <laughs> I was going to say it was a subject, the COVID inquiry, dear to our hearts. But what's the opposite of dear to our hearts? Because we've seen some pretty depressing and unseemly, I would say, behaviour at this COVID inquiry. This week, it's been the turn of Boris's former senior advisors, Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane. And it's just basically been gossip, hasn't it, Lee? And we've talked about this. It's been who used what swear word about who. I couldn't care less about what the toxic culture was like in number 10 in the spring of 2020. What I want to know is who decided to abandon the perfectly good UK pandemic plan? Who trusted Professor Neil Ferguson's modelling? Who did a risk-benefit analysis on the likely harms of lockdown? economic, health and social, which we've heard about so often, haven't we, on Planet Normal? Who gave permission for lockdown sceptics to be spied on? Who authorised millions of pounds to be spent terrorising the public over a virus that posed almost zero threat to the vast majority of healthy people? So I don't know what you're feeling like, Liam. I'm feeling partly we're justified, but then partly we hear these absolutely surreal exchanges, which suggest that no one has been paying attention to what's happened at all. So we had Lee Kane, Boris's former press guy, giving evidence against Boris, saying he's somebody who would often seek counsel from multiple sources and change his mind on an issue. Didn't we want to have a prime minister who would be seeking counsel from broader sides? But anyway, so I'm feeling absolutely infuriated and disgusted. I think the words sham are, are being bandied about. And also we have the extraordinary situation where Neil Ferguson, Professor John Edmonds are absolutely bigged up by this inquiry. And the great Professor Shinetra Gupta, the country's leading theoretical epidemiologist, woman who knows more than anyone in the world about flu isn't even invited to give testimony. You know, this inquiry, in some ways, it shines a light on our political and media culture in this country. There's so much that's good about our political and media culture. But bear with me. When our parliamentarians debate stuff in Parliament, they do so in a way that almost no one else in the world does. It can be adversarial, but it's open, it's contested. There's so much that's good about our politics. But the flip side of that is sometimes we just get so hung up on the the drama and the personalities and the phrase showbiz for ugly people just comes back into my mind Mm -hmm. when it comes to describing our political culture. What's going on here is not an earnest inquiry looking at evidence into the question that the public really cares about, which is when there's another pandemic contingent on what the virus is, do we lock down or not? Was Sweden right or was the rest of the world right? That is the question that needs to be answered. And we did so much on this during lockdown, didn't we, Alison? Planet Normal did not begin as a lockdown 
podcast, but it rapidly became one because we were talking to Macmillan Cancer Research about the massive spike there was going to be after lockdown because people weren't presenting early enough. We talked to the likes of Shelter about what was going on at the sharp end of accommodation in the UK during lockdown. We talked to all kinds of people within the NHS, both on and off the record about what was happening. We talked to economists about the enormous collateral damage. And we talked to people in Sweden, didn't we? You famously ended up getting an interview with Anders Tegnell, the Swedish health supremo, who held out and said, I think we should have a much more moderate lockdown, giving people more chance to do their own thing, not locking down schools, understanding as we did within months of COVID beginning. Of course, at the beginning, no one knew what this was. It could have been Ebola. (laughs) But once we knew after a few months that it was very much discriminating by age, once we were saying on Planet Normal, uh, the reality by summer and autumn of 2020, crikey, the average age of death with COVID is higher than the average age of death death. anyway. Yeah. Crikey. And you see from some of the WhatsApp messages, he's not getting any credit for it, but Boris Johnson was making exactly the same points. Yes. And yet he is being ridiculed. This inquiry, it's clearly a show trial of Boris by a lot of people that hate Boris, whatever you think of him. And among that, I include some of his former aides who he sacked, who also hate him. So this is like political theatre for a lot of people who are politically against some of the main actors who made decisions during lockdown. And I included a lot of the civil service among that. I personally think he will deny it. He's entitled to, I think the league QC is very much enjoying this, the sort of showmanship of it. I don't, there's any scientific inquiry going on that answers the one question that people want answered. Should we follow Sweden or should we follow China a much more rigid lockdown? This is all about politics. This is all about drama. This is not a good use of public money. And I think it shows the worst of our political and media class rather than our political and media class needing to step up in order to restore public confidence that this, one of the most advanced countries in the world, can handle a pandemic. Do you remember, Liam, during that period where we had those press briefings every evening with the doomed twins, Witty and Valance and Boris in the middle looking completely sort of distray. And I, I'm having that feeling looking at the COVID inquiry yeah. with this KC, Hugo Keith. He asked, I think it was Kane or Cummings, you know, were, were there any plans for the collateral damage that was going to be caused by lockdown? And I think it was Lee Kane said, no, sadly, there were no plans for the victims of domestic violence and the children who would go mad being off school and so on. And then you or I as a journalist would have said to that person, right, well, why was that? Who had said there would be no cost-benefit analysis? All of the questions that we used to want to shout at, well, we did shout at the telly during lockdown. And when I would be texting George, our NHS insider, saying, is that graph? They've just sold about um, hospital occupancy true. And George would then immediately trot away and find out what the actual figures were and say, no, they've moved the axes of the graph to make it look far worse than it is and so on. But just let me read this to the listeners just before we move on to your brilliant interview. This is the written statement to the COVID inquiry from Professor Shanetra Gupta, who has not been asked to appear. So Shanetra says, focus on the key trade-off. 
rather than wasting time and energy on understanding why we were not more eager to implement such measures earlier in the epidemic, I believe a more useful line for the COVID inquiry would be to examine why we did not distinguish between, on the one hand, the benefits the measures could have brought at an individual level to those at risk of severe disease, and on the other, the harms they were bound to cause at a population level, especially for the poor and the young. The logic of focus protection for the vulnerable rather than the lockdown should have been, quotes, obvious to those whose responsibility it was to manage the response to the pandemic. And Shinetra concludes, the blind adoption of lockdown and lack of debate as to how to respond to the uncertainties is a tragedy for which the whole of society is now paying a hefty price. In March, the Daily Telegraph broke a story. The former Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, has described the leaking of thousands of his WhatsApp messages. The Daily Telegraph says it's obtained thousands of WhatsApp messages. On the 100,000 leaked WhatsApp messages revealed. Some poor so-and-sos had to go through those. And now, those same poor so-and-sos are going deeper. The stunning incompetence of the British state was absolutely extraordinary. The COVID inquiry may be underway. They definitely knew what they were doing when they took them out of the hospitals into the care homes. But you shouldn't have to wait years for answers. You've got lockdown. There is no way that that isn't going to have a massive impact. If I had sit on that material to protect politicians' dark secrets, I don't think that would have been an honourable thing to do. The Lockdown Files podcast from The Telegraph. Follow now, wherever you're listening to this, to make sure you don't miss an episode. Now, when Professor Carl Hennigan joined us on Planet Normal back in September 2021, you called him a scientist hero, Alison. As Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford, Hennigan had certainly gone against the government's view of across-the-board lockdown, arguing instead for a more balanced, targeted approach, with only the over-65s and the medically vulnerable shielding. During lockdown, Hennigan, together with epidemiologist Professor Sinatra Gupta, cancer specialist Carol Sikora and other scientists, wrote an open letter calling for the government to modify its COVID strategy, moving away from full lockdown towards a more discretionary Swedish approach. Spall forward to today, and Professor Hennigan was recently called to give evidence to the COVID inquiry. His stellar academic reputation is enhanced by the fact that he also practices medicine during weekend shifts as an emergency GP. Despite this vast experience, appearing before the COVID inquiry left Carl Hennigan shaken. This world-class yet mild-mannered scientist told me he felt ambushed while giving his testimony. In his words, constantly interrupted deliberately unnerved and character assassinated. It's fair to say there's a significant problem with this inquiry, Professor Hennigan told me. It's starting to look like it's biased. They're using evidence to retrofit what they think was the right thing to do. In general terms, how do you think the UK's COVID inquiry is going? Well, I think, you know, we're into module two now, which is about government decision making and sort of the effects of interventions. I have to say, so far, I think it's been disappointing. And it's disappointing, I think, for two reasons. One is because we're not getting into the issues at hand, what works, what doesn't work. 
what should we have done to interpret the science? And actually, what we seem to be doing is focusing more on characters, assassinating people, WhatsApp messages, who said what about whom. And I think what should happen is all of those WhatsApp messages, diaries, which I've had seen are pretty dire, should be put in the public domain so we can dispense with the tittle-tattle and get on with the serious business of learning lessons. Because that's all anybody really wants an answer to, right? If we get hit with another pandemic, should we lock down or should we take a more what's been called Swedish approach, where you have targeted assistance um, and a lot of people just get on with their lives? There are sort of a couple of ways of looking at this. One is to say, let's follow what China did, unprecedented, for three years staying complete lockdown, manage all of the population, and then somehow emerge three years later and everything will be all right. And I think we've tried the sort of halfway house of lockdown, cost us 400 billion, huge collateral issues. Versus the second aspect is the idea that what you do that minimizes the disruption society the least, but also protects those that are the most vulnerable. So, for instance, in the first wave, 50% of the people who died were of the excess were in care homes. We completely failed to protect care homes, yet that's not an issue on the agenda. What's more important is who's a credible expert, who's wrong, who's right, but particularly this issue of lockdowns is the most prominent, important issue that we face today. Because at the moment on the table is more lockdowns. Let Next time, let's go harder and faster. And that's the sort of Hancock position and many of the scientific advisors' position. And that really needs to be addressed and unpicked. There were some incredibly distinguished experts who, during lockdown, were arguing for a more moderate approach, a Swedish approach, where schools weren't locked down, where young people in particular were allowed to get on with their lives, where the economy wasn't totally locked down. How did Sweden do compared to the UK? Well, I think if you look at it overall, if you look in sort of the three years, Sweden ended up in pretty much a similar place we are in terms of excess deaths. So wherever you look over the period of time, we pretty much come out equal despite the fact they had no lockdowns. And importantly, if you look what they did, they made a similar mistake to us. In the first wave, they failed to protect care homes. But if you look outside of that, their epidemiological approach said, what we do is present the public with the risks and I trust them to understand what to do and how to behave. Now, they did certain things. So the first thing is they didn't do nothing. You know, they restricted large-scale mass events down to, I think, about 500 people. Second is, they didn't have standing in pubs and restaurants. The opposite to that is they did things like let schools open. They didn't wear masks. And basically, their data shows you as a control what happens is if you trust the public and they understand the risk. We don't even ask in that question within the COVID inquiry because that, for everybody, is a problem if you sit there and go, well, lockdowns worked and we need to do it harder and faster. And we're not prepared seemingly to go and look at that issue. But also, we don't want to look at care homes and the disaster there. And we also don't seem to want to address one of the fundamental problems in this pandemic was the huge problem of hospital-acquired infection. As you pull people into hospital, it spread rapidly throughout hospitals and infected those people who'd gone in for heart attacks and strokes. And that's what created a huge problem. So, if we took an evidence-based approach, we'd really be teasing out these issues. 
So let's just put that absolutely in layman's terms. You're saying, Professor of Epidemiology at Oxford University, no less, you're saying that Sweden had roughly the same number of excess deaths, incidents of excess deaths, of course, they're a much smaller population than the UK, but they had a much, much more moderate lockdown, barely any lockdown. And meanwhile, we also paid the collateral damage of lockdown. Briefly, Professor Hennigan, what was the collateral damage of lockdown? Planet Normal listeners know well, but for new listeners, what was the collateral damage of lockdown apart from £400 billion of extra government spending? You number one, you start with the economic consequences. I think they're huge, and you've just said they're 400 billion, but it's not just 400 billion. It's the problems we face today ongoing. So that's number one. Second, then, is you think about mental health, particularly across the board. We've seen this huge problem in children, adolescents, increased mental health problems across the board. Third, then, you've got other healthcare issues, chronic conditions, worsened diabetes, blood pressure, because what we did is put a huge pause on healthcare. Fourth, then we've got the social consequences, particularly in our younger people. Think about having a child who gets to the age of two and a half, three, who all they will have seen around them is adults with masks on. Think about their ability, their language progression, but also their social ability to go into the world and understand how the world works. But also within all of this, there are an interesting area of the data. And this is one of the key things we're about to look at now is the excess mortality. Now, one of the greatest areas of excess mortality in the three years of the pandemic going back to March 2020 is excess deaths in the home. And those excess deaths that we sit here in England are in excess of 100,000 deaths. And only about 25% of those have COVID on the death certificate. So there's been a huge rise in excess deaths that are not COVID-related in the period of the pandemic. We asked the government to investigate this and start looking at it, because if you understand the drivers, you know how to intervene. But actually, they refuse to do that. And this is one of the key problems. If you don't look at the problem and actually then say, look, we understand there's a problem, now look what's driving it, you're never going to fix it. So the collateral impact, and I could go on, I could talk about childhood vaccination programmes, another area, could talk about cancer care, but you could probably get someone like Carol Zagora, who's much better understanding, but huge issues across the range of problems that occurred because of policies of lockdown that actually, if you look in the REM... The list of collateral damage goes on, doesn't it? I mean, you mentioned cancer care, massive NHS waiting lists, officially seven or eight million, probably more like 15 to 18 million the ghost children that haven't come back to school yet since lockdown, abuse in the home with people freaking out because they're all living in small apartments and so on, while middle-class commentators and civil servants are sitting at home with their nice gardens working away on their laptops. And I'm sure future historians will pour over the costs of lockdown here in the UK compared to, say, Sweden. But let's really get into the nitty-gritty, Professor Hennigan, of why we're talking to you specifically at this time. Tell me, tell Alison, tell Planet Normal listeners, tell the world how you feel about your appearance in front of the COVID inquiry, how you were treated by the chair, how you were treated by the KCs who were there, and how you think the inquiry is being steered. So let's just set out what happened here. I was invited to give written evidence. I spent quite a few weeks putting together what I considered was a very coherent document. 
is about 70 pages long, and it makes 12 clear points about the issues we should address. I was then invited to go and give oral evidence. I had uh, appearances speaking to the Prime Minister, then Boris Johnson, but other areas where we pointed out issues in the data. When I turned up at the inquiry, all I can say is I felt like I was ambushed because my time was cut short. And then at the last minute, all of the things I prepared for were dropped. And we started going after me, started with a sort of character assassination. Let's try and unnerve you. And in those situations, when you get into that position, it's very difficult then to provide coherent answers when you're being interrupted all the time, you've been put on the wrong foot, and you've not actually prepared for the issues at hand. I think the Telegraph ran two videos showing the difference between how I've been treated and other people treated. And I think it's fair to say now that there's a significant problem that's appearing in the inquiry. Is it starting to look like it's biased? And it's biased because if you formulate opinions, actually what happens is the evidence in front of you doesn't actually affect what's happened next. You use all of that evidence to retrofit to what you consider is the right thing to do. Now, there are people at government levels and advisors that I don't understand how they're operating because they're explosive. The way they operate, the way they dismiss people, for me, is unacceptable in any workplace or any environment because what I see is when people disagree with me, I come to a position where I start to go, right, how can I understand what they're on about and how can I argue and debate or what does the evidence say? In this situation, what's happening here is I was the only person who seems to represent the other side. My oral evidence was squashed into less than an hour, and most of that hour was trying to either undermine me or actually address a document, the Barrington Declaration, that I didn't even write. What's the purpose of that? Now, if the inquiry had set out for a whole week to listen to many of the eminent people who had set out their views on the other side of the argument, I suspect by Wednesday, Thursday, they would start to understand some of the bigger issues and becoming to different ways of looking at the issues at hand. Therefore, what I recommend is they have to really get some alternative views and start listening to them in the room. Why were you mistreated? I'm in a position where when I've been in this situation is because of the other side has an agenda. And that agenda, I can't understand or determine what it is at this moment in time. In terms of our position, in terms of how we make decisions in governance, I think this is a watershed moment. And it's a watershed moment because I have received overwhelming messages from even people who don't like me, from all sides of the spectrum going, what is happening? Why we stitch up? It was abhorrent how you were treated. And this is a huge number of messages, emails, texts, coming at me, saying what is going on and something has to change. I'm also getting a lot of sides from the media now going, where are we? What's going on? But most of the media were massively pro-lockdown. They say they weren't, but they were. Yeah, no, but there are people. I mean, I nearly fell out of my chair when the BBC contacted me this weekend because they haven't been in touch for nearly two years. So actually what's happening here is you hope that from the other side, there is a, an agenda where people get it. I've always trusted the public. I always trust the evidence. In the end, we'll get to the truth. The problem is the inquiry might not be the place for that truth. It will be in other arenas where people will start to unpick all of the arguments. So here's one issue. There are people get up on the stand and say, Professor Hennigan got it wrong. Yeah. And they do that to try and undermine it. A good KC 
or a good legal position should go, okay, can you highlight and set out what he got wrong? Because I don't know what I got wrong because these people don't write about it. I can't see where they put it in the public domain. They never contact me. They never contact anybody. So I wrote back to Hallett and say, Baroness Hallett, the chair of the inquiry. I said, Professor Edmonds said I got it wrong. And I'm like, can you give me a right or reply as to what I got wrong? It is unacceptable to leave that hanging without going, hmm, actually, the chair should be going, Mike, can you detail what was wrong? And we'll get a right reply. Why is that not happening? Now, it feels like, I mean, the playground a bit, Liam, that we're all throwing names at each other, you know, names will never hurt me, but it feels like we're in the playground trying to say, I'm right, you're wrong. That's not how we operate. There are uncertainties for which we can inform how the evidence can be used to make better decisions. That is not on the table at this moment in time. I want to come on to the meeting of the 20th of September 2020, where you were with the Prime Minister in Downing Street and with officials and what your impression of what Boris Johnson believed or didn't believe. We will come on to that. Firstly, I want to ask you, how weird is it that you were asked about the Great Barrington Declaration, which Planet Normal listeners will know well, when we have three extremely distinguished authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, which, of course, was a document formulated in the US, which argued for discretionary shielding rather than full lockdown. We have Professor Shinetra Gupta of Oxford. We have Professor Martin Koldor, formerly of Harvard. We have Professor Jay Bhattacharya of Stanford. I mean, they are right up there in the pantheon of global experts. How do you feel that none of them have been asked to give evidence to this inquiry? Yeah, I think, well, look, it's unacceptable. And it means we have not got accountability within this inquiry. You're dead right. I did not sign the document. Therefore, should that should have been the end. And they should have talked to me about the documents I did sign or wrote about. It'd be a bit like getting Sinetra Gupta on the stand and going, can you just talk to me about this document that Carl Hennigan signed? What we're doing there is trying to get, make the witness make an error or mistake. It should have been the end of the discussion. Thank you very much. We'll now call them witnesses. Imagine in a court of law if that was the case. So an inquiry should answer those questions. They should bring all three of them into the inquiry and discuss the issues at hand. Then when they bring me, they could add to that with all of my epidemiological expertise, but also my clinical experience. Do you know what, Liam? I'm the only one person that has those experiences and has been directly into care homes throughout the COVID pandemic. That's why you are so valuable, because you combine that research and academic expertise with hands-on, practical, sleeves-rolled-up experience. And what happens is, at the end of the day, is the expertise I don't gain is I'm not a mathematician. My PhD wasn't in physics. It's in medicine. It's in healthcare. All the things that matter seem to be peripheral to the inquirer. So actually, if you look at everybody's expertise and experience, you start to go, hmm, there are issues here. These people don't even understand if an infection got in a care home. How might people die? What might they die of? How do we protect them? Well, they don't have an understanding of that. They don't have healthcare experience or expertise, and they've never been in that environment. It is imperative that actually people like Sinetra Gupta and Jay, and there are many others, are called to give their side so there's an experience that says, hmm, there's a different ways of looking at this problem. Final question. You were in the meeting. Did then Prime Minister Boris Johnson back a Swedish approach or did he back full lockdown? So, look, here's what was in the meeting. There were three ways on the table. One was a complete lockdown, 
And that's the advisory petition of the mathematicians. And that lockdown was to get cases below a thousand and then use testing trace, which was untried, to keep them below a thousand and stay in lockdown until that occurred. Now, I couldn't sleep that night. I'm sure Sinetra Gupta couldn't because I thought we're going to be in lockdown here for years to come. The collateral damage would have been huge because we were talking not just having a third of people, we're talking schools, education, universities, all businesses closed. The other two was a Swedish approach, which was much more trust the people and actually go with a system of approach where you go, look, we'll have, like I say, small events, but we'll also have no masks and we'll also have like bars and restaurants seated only. The third approach was a tiered system. And that's what emerged out of the meeting. I have to say that's what the meeting backed. And I think they backed that because they said, this is a sort of middle ground in some way, because the problem is the pressures were so huge at that moment in time, particularly, I think, from the advisory systems, that actually they couldn't see another way apart from the tier system. So you don't think Boris Johnson backed the Swedish approach then? I think if you looked at it, I think he would have liked to have done and would have potentially wanted to do that. But I'm sure he'll give this option at the inquiry to be able to say that. But I think what he was doing, I have to say, I think what he was doing is trying to say, I need to get some balanced perspectives and better advice in the room to give me an overall picture of what I think is going on. And my perception up to that moment in time is he hadn't got that balanced position. And that's why he called in different people into the meeting. Professor Carl Hennigan, thanks so much for appearing once again on Planet Normal. So there you have it, Alison. Professor Carl Hennigan, he did emerge from academia as a, a major figure, I think, in the debate about lockdown. It's fair to say during lockdown, he was castigated by a lot of people despite his stellar academic credentials, a lot like Shanetra Gupta was and the authors of the so-called Great Barrington Declaration. Carl Hennigan, as he said, wasn't part of the Great Barrington Declaration, which was, of course, a statement of intent why we should have more discretionary shielding. And I think it's fair to say he's a very mild-mannered man. He does not jump up and down. It's not in his nature. He's a research animal and he's a medic to his fingertips. But I think you could sense in his voice and in his choice of vocabulary, very out of character, the strength of his words, he's really angry. And he rightly is, Liam. I saw on social media a clip of him at the inquiry and I couldn't believe what I was watching. He was he was being patronised, treated so rudely. The woman who had been one of the sort of senior medics in Downing Street had, well, I won't use the language that she used, but it was unbelievably rude and obscene. And, and as we know, Liam, Carl is the opposite of hysterical. He was extremely thorough. He can be quite uh, frustrating to interview because he doesn't want to give you sound bites. He doesn't ever want to exaggerate. He is, as his title suggests, he is the professor of evidence-based medicine. And during lockdown, he, unlike any of those people in Downing Street 
was going into care homes regularly. He was seeing people in hospital. He could see what was happening with the cross infections. As he mentioned to you, he could see that a huge number of so-called COVID admissions to hospital were actually people who'd gone into hospital for something else and had ended up getting COVID in hospital. So I really feel that something in me snapped when I saw Carl Hennigan being treated like that by an inquiry, which should be holding him in high esteem and respect. And it was in stark contrast to the sort of build-up that they gave for people like, say, Professor John Edmonds, who had been one of the most sort of ardent lockdown hysteric. So for me, it's a real sign that something has gone extremely badly wrong with the COVID inquiry. And we either need a major reset into what they're actually looking at, or I just think the whole thing should just be abandoned because we just seem to be heading for a preordained conclusion. I think since lockdown ended, Alison, I think among media commentators, there's been a kind of grudging acceptance that the likes of you and me, people who are very much pro-vax, but who were concerned about the collateral damage of lockdown, which of course made us hysterical lunatics in the eyes of a lot of the mainstream during lockdown. I think there's a grudging respect for us that maybe not only did we have a point, but we were right. And I think Joranda's Tegnell interview and the undeniable evidence from Sweden really moved the needle on that. Remember, there was a period of time when we were teasing various people on social media who were claiming they'd been really sceptical about lockdown <laughs> yeah. when, we, when we knew that they'd been the most ardent, harder, faster, firmer yeah. cheerleaders. So I think the sort of media class, the commentariat, and certainly the public, which is always ahead of all of us in my experience, they realised that we went too far. That's not you know an across-the-board view, but I think it is now a widespread view, maybe even a majority view. But what we have are some of the players from within Whitehall and the political elite who are so determined to prove that they were right, they'll do it even in the face of actual evidence that they were wrong. So we're going to end up reinforcing the error because this is a finger-pointing blame game exercise. It is not a scientific exercise to try and forge lessons to understand the way ahead if we come into another similar pandemic, which could easily happen, it must be said. So it is an unedifying spectacle. And how do you think the example of Carl Hennigan plays on the minds of other academics? Mm -hmm. I have various feet in the academic world. I have connections with various universities. One day in my dreams, I'll go back to academia someday and I know I spend so much time with academics saying, look, why don't you just put your head above the parapet a little bit, write an op-ed, and because what you're saying is very interesting, but no one can understand it. You have to justify the public money that goes into academia by having an impact on the policy debate from time to time, not just in my field of economics, but you know, medicine and, and science and so on. And yet here you have somebody who is brilliantly equipped to do that. He has an absolute blue ribboned posting at one of the most prestigious universities in the world, Carl Hennigan. He's a practical hands-on medic himself. He is brilliantly articulate. He writes superbly well. You don't get multiple articles published in The Spectator, as we know, unless you can really write. Mm. And he did all that during lockdown. And what has he got for his trouble? He was not only 
demonized during lockdown by a lot of the rest of the media and Whitehall briefing against him. And it happened because they tried to brief against him to me and I told them to go away and have a think. <laughs> but even when he's been proved, you know, pretty much correct, they're still vilifying him. They're still asking him to do a 70 page document, which he did. And they're not asking him about any of it. <laughs> but that's what's so bad, Liam, because really, what was this, you know, follow the science, scientific consensus, never been any anything more ridiculous than the phrase, follow the science. There is no one science and it should have been changing all the time in response to as we were getting real evidence that Carl and others were gathering from the real world. But of course, we found out, didn't we, on Planet Normal, that the money for research and grants and so on, what the scientists say, what they agree with, if they are into the group think, then they'll get the funding. And if they're part of the awkward squad, like Carl or Shanetra, the money's withdrawn. And also we've seen, even with someone as, as eminent as Professor Gupta, we've seen her having difficulty getting papers oh, published. Awful. I mean, this is censorship. This is authoritarian. This is what happens in Soviet type society. So these are absolutely crucial questions that any inquiry worth its salt would be talking about. Actually, Boris now, who is, as you said earlier, is clearly the scapegoat of choice for all their mistakes. Yet Boris, bless him, you know, in all his faffing around and being a bit hopeless, was actually on the right track. He was actually calling these people in to give a different view. And the Dominic Cummings, I have a lot of time for Dominic Cummings' skill as a sort of political Barnum, a showman and an analyst. But he really was on the wrong side of the argument and now is trying to damn the Prime Minister who in his own way, was fumbling towards the truth that, that he was not being given the correct information to make all those decisions. And Planet Normal listeners will remember that another stalwart of Planet Normal, Lord Frost, David Frost, armed with information he'd heard on Planet Normal, left the cabinet, walked out of the cabinet because he had heard information here on our podcast, which told him that another Christmas lockdown must be out of the question. So I am absolutely incandescent, Liam, about this travesty when the country is owed a proper account of what went wrong. Now on to our listener emails, your messages sent to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We love to read your thoughts and we learn so much from you, the citizens of Planet Normal. This is from Burnside. He is one of the funniest people on Twitter, now X. He's a big Planet Normal informant. Burnside says, the COVID inquiry is equivalent to an inquiry into the Titanic focusing on the performance of the band as the ship sank. They should have started playing earlier. They should have played longer. They should have served scotch eggs. And James <laughs> says... Good morning, Rocketeers. It seems the police have taken sides on the Israel-Palestine issue. It wouldn't have mattered if they'd taken the opposing side. They have not upheld the law without fear or favour. We are truly lost. Regards from James. We have had such a response to the interview with Rose Grayston, yeah, we have. our young housing analyst, formerly a key figure in the research team at, at Shelter, one of the smartest housing analysts I know, very much a member of Generation Rent herself. I'm just going to read out one, but there have been dozens and dozens, and we uh -huh. will return to this subject. Yeah. So well done to Rose for 
causing such a big response. Dear Alison and Liam, I enjoyed Liam's book on the housing crisis. I was relieved when he said that he understood how people felt about developments which affect them adversely, as NIMBYs, not in my backyard, has become a pejorative insult like COVID denier or climate change denier. Liam, like you, I live in a market town, in my case, northeast Scotland. I'd like to share with you the impact an unsympathetic development has had on us. We live just outside the town, which has grown towards us. Some 15 years ago, a 250 home estate was built behind our house. When consent was obtained, there was a footpath behind our house and behind that four biggish bungalows. Once permission was obtained, the footpath disappeared and the number of houses increased to seven along the back of our garden. When building started, it then became apparent that the ground was being built up behind us by two metres, something which hadn't appeared on the plans. So all seven homes now look down into our garden, destroying privacy, which was now protected only by the trees we've planted and which the new occupants, of course, repeatedly ask us to cut down. Unfortunately, the whole development was undertaken only to meet the needs for profit. There was little demand for more housing in the town, and as a result, it became difficult to sell the older stone-built houses, which give our ancient town its character. With this kind of cavalier attitude from both builders and planners, it's no wonder nimbyism is rife. We need to let our small towns grow organically as houses are needed, preferably built by smaller, more locally-based firms and in small numbers. Large developments which can destroy communities should be discouraged, and new towns encouraged, as you suggest. Keep up the good work. I look forward to listening to Planet Normal every Friday, a new godsend during COVID. Regards, Bob. Good email, Bob. I hear where you're coming from. Just to say, Liam, as you said, we had a huge amount of reaction to your interview with Rose Grayston. A lot of listeners did point out that one thing that wasn't touched on was the huge levels of immigration, which, of course, have had an impact on the very great difficulty in housing. And I'm going to abbreviate this, but Tom in Huddersfield says, Dear Liam and Alison, while listening to your interview with Rose Grayston, it seemed that for all the very interesting, well-informed discussion of the house building system, greedy developers, nimbyism and so on, Rose was tiptoeing around the giant elephant in the room, immigration. Since Tony Blair came to power in 1997, annual net immigration has increased from 48,000 to 606,000 in 2022. And then Tom goes on, with lots of different stats about the huge number of people coming here compared to the shockingly small amount of housing going up. And he says, to ignore all this seems willful. I understand some people are reluctant to discuss this and that members of Generation Rent in particular will fear being labelled racist if they were to mention immigration in relation to their housing struggles. But surely the expense and shortage of housing in the UK has one primary cause, a massively increased and still increasing demand caused by immigration. So that's another factor to add to the long list, Liam. Right, to end, we're going to have a bit of fun, Alison. Mm. It's Planet Normal karaoke time. Now, there's been a running theme throughout Planet Normals. We talk about sort of 70s television that we grew up with, don't we? We talk about Scooby-Doo and we talk <laughs> about Grange Hill. And we've talked about Are You Being Served? John Humphreys, I'm free. Molly Sugden, Mrs. Slocum's Pussy. Wendy <laughs> Richard as Miss Brahms. Trevor Bannister as Mr. Lucas. And Bob, not his real name, but the Planet Normal bard, Bob, has struck again because Bob has <laughs> written a version of the Are You Being Served theme tune, Are You Paying More? It says 12-inch <laughs> version. And you'll remember the Are You Being Served theme tune. It's got a kind of 
the BBC were trying to save money. They didn't want to use heavily unionised musicians. So they got recordings of tills and money. That's right. A bit like Pink Floyd did on their track money. And by the way, this theme tune was written the year before 72. Pink Floyd actually did their track money. So maybe Pink Floyd ripped off Are You Being Served? <laughs> but you'll remember it goes, the so-called lift girl, ground floor perfumery, stationery and leather goods, wigs and haberdashery, kitchen wearing food going up. Ba, 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 ba. Ba, 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 ba. Now, unless yep. you're at least 50, you won't know what we're talking about. <laughs> so I suggest you Google, are you being served theme tune? And then you're going to get it. So, Alison, I'm going to be the lift girl and I'm going to call out the floors or Bob's version of are you paying more as opposed to are you being served? And then together we're going to do the ba, ba. Okay, ready? Mm-hmm. Here we go. One, two, three, four. It's not just what we're paying at the supermarket tills, but our mortgages and council tax, utilities and bills going up. Driving's more expensive. It's enough to break the bank with the cost of your insurance and of filling up the tank going up. The young are paying so much rent they want a house to buy. But what happens to the prices when there's not enough supply going up? Now there's rumours on the markets of what Iran might do. What'll happen to the price of oil if tankers can't get through? Going up. The last one. This inflation's bad for Rishi if he's really lost control. What'll happen to the Tories and their numbers in the polls going down? There you go. A Planet Normal world exclusive. Are you being served? With apologies to Ronnie Hazelhurst. And you won't know who he is either unless you're the wrong side of 50. And on that bombshell. That's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week, it's my turn, and it has to go to the first Bob, the NIMBY Bob. So, Bob, we understand where NIMBYs are coming from. We're not demonising you. Send us an email, planetnormal.telegraph.co.uk, pop mug winner in the subject heading, and give us your home address, and you will get a Planet Normal mug. If you enjoy Planet Normal, as you jolly well should, because we make a big effort here, or the entire team, please do leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, because it gives co-pilot Halligan something to console him. And me too, actually. Cat update is going to have to wait for another week, but we know but we know the money's going up. <laughs> bah, bah, bah. No, sorry, sorry, sorry. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bajard, Cass Ho and Louisa Wells. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Till next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.